Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. It's Monday, January 29th. The Lunar New Year is just around the corner. We check in on efforts by the city to double down on crime and homeless problems. Things are looking up in downtown Chinatown. We hear more about how some Hawaii public charter schools are handling the challenges of facilities. The fuel contamination of drinking water spurs a dive into the history of Red Hill, a life and death during the construction of the military installation. And University of Hawaii at Manoa eSports students take a stand for women in the competitive gaming industry. Plus, this month marks the anniversary of the death of King Kalakaua. Why a hotel in San Francisco has included a nod to the Hawaiian monarch in a new uh, corner museum. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This Saturday, a Chinatown parade kicks off the Lunar New Year celebrations. 2024 is the Year of the Dragon. And this past Saturday, HPR was there for a tour of downtown Chinatown and the surrounding business district. It's been a year since we last focused on the impact of COVID. Big chains, Longs, and Walmart pulled out because with no downtown office workers, their profit margins shrunk. In Chinatown, longtime family businesses also did not survive. Char Hut Sut and Little Noodle Village are among the casualties. But hotels are opening, or soon to open, and some spaces are in the process of being turned over. Ernest Carvalho, who sits on the neighborhood board, helped to organize the weekend tour to show city and state efforts in clearing homeless camps and reducing crime. We got hit during COVID really bad, and it really destroyed a lot. But businesses are starting to come back on this street. If you notice when you're walking down, you see they're coming. So we want to hit the positive notes here, yeah? We want to show what's going on. It's going to take time. Nothing happens overnight. But it's going to take time for Chinatown to be molded into that beautiful gem that we're all looking for. Okay? Thank you. We'll get it done. On that tour was Chad Guerrero. He moved downtown from Kailua about seven years ago. He's seen the progress being made and is glad for it. The amount of homeless went down about 80%. 80%. You can always have homeless because there's people that just don't want to go. And I seen the social workers, they're trying, so give them credit. They talk and then they're hard head. Most of the people are not mentally stable yeah and so yeah. then that's that's how it is but do you have seen though efforts to oh, yeah. clean up a, chinatown evil a has been cleared up you only see one encampment right now but he's going to get booted out in a few days when they get the truck they're going to come but then the aclu is always watching why are you here today i want to see what people say and then if, if i can add on to help the mayor because, you know, everything goes wrong, everything goes to the mayor, you know, you, you know, when something goes wrong, they always mean the mayor, the governor, somebody got to take the, take the responsibility, yeah? And the people are so frustrated. High cost of food, crime, shootings, and all of that. But I like the old days when they had uh, Chinese New Year, and I'm part Chinese, okay? I got the height Hawaiian and Portuguese. But I like the, the spirit, we had the wolf at, and all of this. And the downtown business community is eager to welcome crowds to celebrate the Lunar New Year. Last January, we saw the first conversion of an office tower into residential units. Keith Crouto rented in the renovated tower and was glad to be able to live downtown in spite of the growing pains. Yes, I, I lived in 1132 with my wife in a one-bedroom, and it, ironically enough, the floor that we were on, the 24th floor, was previously offices that I now work for a company, Hawaiian Properties, that was previously in that building years ago, and now we relocated across the street, right across the, the 4th Street Mall, um, to 1165 Bethel Street. So for me, it was a commute of two minutes to walk to work, which was great. It's, uh, 1132 is, uh, is rentals, uh, Douglas Emmett, I believe, is the, uh, the managing company, and they do a good job. I think they still have some bumps to work out in terms of how they manage the building and keep it clean and safe. They do allow pets, which is great. Um, and I think that's a challenge because not everyone cleans up after their dogs when they're in the elevator and such. But the gym is nice, it's well, it's well suited. And in the lobby, there's um, a vendor, Daisy Cafe, that does a really good job. So if you don't want to leave the building or you don't want to go far, it's actually quite good. So 
we have seen some uh, change down here. A number of businesses closing. You know, Walmart folks used to go there for groceries and whatnot. What do you need as a resident down here? Well, there was a Korean market that just opened up where Long's used to be. The Walmart's a bummer because you could get low-cost items there. So not having that has been a bit of a challenge because now you've got to walk to Safeway or to Long's down on uh, Pulley. Uh, but the good news is businesses are coming back and restaurants now are being revitalized. Some are coming back and that's going to help. The farmer's market right, right on 4th Street Mall is fabulous. We buy our produce there. We make soups and we just love that. So that's an important lifeline, I think, for a lot of people in this area. And I know my colleagues at work will often run out and get their produce from there as well. So you'd like to stay downtown? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've lived in New York. We've lived in Shanghai. It's the closest to real city living you can find on Oahu. So we love living downtown and there's a lot of options now. Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi, along with Senator Carl Rhodes, were on hand for the tour, as was Honolulu City Council member Tyler Dos Santos Tam. Yeah, well, I think our downtown is in an upswing. We have the AC Hotel opening. You know, we're moving forward in some of the conversions. But again, it's still two steps forward and one step back. You know, we still need uh, more of that critical mass down here. The businesses are still, you know, some of them are still struggling. And they've been struggling for a while since the beginning of the pandemic when office workers, you know, started working from home. Parking still is a challenge. You know, there's some crime challenges, but I'm really hopeful. And I think over the next year uh, and the year after that, you know, we're going to continue this momentum. Yes. And, you know, at the time we last talked, I think Walmart uh, had just announced that it was closing and, you know, that went up for sale. Uh, heard anything about what's planned for that area? No, I understand it was bought um, by a local company, um, but I haven't heard any plans. It is an awkward space, and I think when Walmart closed, there was a concern. What could possibly go there that would make sense? And so hopefully the company that bought it will figure it out. In addition, there's a couple of uh, housing projects that are coming up um, in the next year or two. Uh, there's one by the cathedral, um, and there's another in one of the former HPU buildings next to Executive Center. And so, again, little by little, I think we're going to see a shift in what our downtown looks like. We're going to hopefully have more residents, um, which it really was, you know, historically, um, it was a live, work, play neighborhood, and we have to bring that back a little bit. And what's happening with Wolfat? No. I don't know, but I, they're making good progress. Um, several community members were excited because uh, a little while ago they were testing the uh, lights and electrical, and they lit up the Wolfat sign. and. That hadn't been uh, working for many, many years. It's really cool to see that. Um, hopefully they can wrap that up soon. Any update on the city bills that were hopefully going to help with some of the downtown conversion? So I think this spring we're going to have some uh, language and some of the downtown conversion bills. Um, Bill 64, which uh, Council Vice Chair Esther Kiain has been working really diligently on, is also going to have some uh, mixed-use provisions that I think are going to help places like Chinatown and other neighborhoods in, uh, around the island uh, with being more of a live-work kind of community. And residents are grateful for the efforts to combat crime and homelessness. There are still some concerns about the downtown methadone clinic next to a middle school and plans for a pop-up Kauhale near Aala Park to help the homeless. But they are encouraged and look forward to the Year of the Dragon for prosperity and good luck. If you plan to bring in the New Year, all-day festivities are planned in Chinatown Saturday and a parade kicks off at 4.30 p.m. at the state capitol. Kung Hee Fat Choi. Support for HPR comes from the Kim Coco Fund for Justice of the Iwamoto Family Foundation, partnering with Hawaii Appleseed and RISE, Residential Youth Services and Empowerment, to help end homelessness in Hawaii. HPR presents Kamaha'o Haumea Thronas. This concert is part of HPR's Mele Hawaii Performance Series. Kamaha'o is performing Saturday, February 10th at 6 p.m. and Sunday, February 11th at 2 p.m. For tickets and more information, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the Honolulu African American Film Festival, February 1st to the 25th, with films from across the African diaspora. Schedule at honolulumuseum.org.
Education is always a high priority for lawmakers every session, which leads us to take a closer look at our public charter schools today. They're, and a big nut to crack, to crack their facilities and maintaining those facilities. HPR reporter Cassie Ardonio joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, and charter schools, yes, they constantly uh, have to be looking out for you know, where they're going to be next year. And you're right. And this has been a long-standing issue that charter schools have to grapple with, with securing long-term facilities and even maintaining them. And right now, Hawaii, we have 37 charter schools serving more than 12,000 students statewide. And it's been growing ever since um, when Hawaii passed the charter school law back in, I believe, 1994, 1995, around there. Uh, But one thing charter schools want is a safe and secure building with four walls and a roof over the children's heads. Sometimes charter schools have to get creative with their learning spaces, and sometimes they have to start off in a tent. Um, In my story, I highlighted what Malama Honua Public Charter School in Waimanalo went through. And that charter school is a Hawaiian-focused charter school with Aina-based learning. And I actually went over there sometime last week and spoke with Denise Espana, who's a school director. They have three locations right now, and the location that I went to is actually on DLNR land. Um, They actually secured... um, a sublease with them, and when I went over there, the facilities that they're borrowing from a nonprofit, um, there were students who were learning out of a barn with an AC, and that's an upgrade from the tent that they were in with no air conditioning. Wow. Um, and then some are learning in the hallway, some are learning outside, some are learning still like kind of like in a tent setting, but not so much like those military tents that you mm-hmm. see with no AC. Um, this charter school started off in 2014, and back then they were learning in the back of a church. Right now, um, they have three locations teaching kindergarten through eighth grade, but all they wanted is just one building, which is what they got. Ten years later, we finally have received a co-terminus sublease with DLNR and through Hui Malamokekai, and we'll be taking an area that has not been used by them and being able to clear the invasive trees and plants there, build in some infrastructure, and then build up our K-8 campus so that we can be all together again in one space. So that's super exciting, but it also means then that we need to fundraise because as a state public charter school, even though we have the same expectations as everyone else, as far as providing a curriculum where you're watching students grow over time, we also have to pay for our own facilities above and beyond. We don't have funding for that, so we have to figure out how to pay for our facilities and our rent and our utilities. And then now we're looking at, um, we have to maintain the three sites and fundraise to build what looks to be about 15 to $16 million project. Yeah, that can be daunting. Right, and right now they're paying rent at three of these sites. And so far they've raised $3 million in the last couple of years. And a lot of charter schools, they kind of have their nonprofit arm, the foundation, to kind of help them with these fundraising efforts. So when charter schools were created around the 1990s, they oper- they're operated and managed by inter- independent governing boards. So they have more autonomy than schools at the Department of Education. Um, they are paid on a per-pupil basis, but the money goes towards their overall operating budget. That doesn't include facilities and maintenance, uh, whatnot. So if, let's say, knock on wood, if the lights go off or they, they fall, then that's coming out of their budget to go towards those facilities. But they can advocate for capital improvement project funding from the legislature. But the only thing is charter schools, they have to advocate for themselves compared to DOE schools. So you know when the Department of Education, they go to the legislature, mm-hmm. they have um, X amount of funding they're going to ask lawmakers for their operating budget, for the capital improvement projects, which is the facilities, they can ask, um, I'm just making up a number of $5.6 million, and then that would go towards um, allocating to its more than 200 schools. That doesn't really work for charter schools. And this can be tough for charter schools who have to find other ways to pay rent or upgrade and maintain their facilities, or if they can find a facility at all. I spoke with Buffy Cushman Pates, the founder of SEEKS, that's the acronym for the School for Examining Essential Questions and Sustainability Charter School on Oahu, and they're still searching for their forever home. We have always been in search for that permanent facility because, as I mentioned, we were authorized from the very beginning in 2012 to be a middle and high school, so 6th through 12th grade. So each of the facilities we've been at have been places where we were able to have part of the school. We thought when we were on the campus of Kaimuki High School that we would be able to grow in that space, but that didn't work out. 
and where we are now, we can't grow into the high school grades. So we've been in the search for about more than 11 years. We've looked at more than almost 50 different facilities in Honolulu, and some have been real, real close calls where we thought we were about to make it happen. Fingers crossed that this is the year where, where the right thing comes along and the right set of conditions and makes it makes it possible for us to bring the Sikhs' long-term vision to, to fruition for both, um, you know, we're, we're developing stewards of planet Earth and healthy, effective citizens of the world is really our vision statement. And right now we're able to do that through eighth grade and we can really imagine what's possible when we can do it through 12th grade as well. And. The fact that she said that, you know, they've started their charter school in 2012 and what has been more than a decade later and they still haven't found their forever home. Um, that does pose a challenge to other charter schools as well. So if they want to expand, sometimes they can't because they don't have the facilities to hold the capacity of students. And at the legislature, advocates are pushing for a resolution that could address those facility woes. I spoke with David Sunmiashiro. He's the executive director for the nonprofit Hawaii Kids Can. And the possible uh, resolution the nonprofit wants to push forward would request the State Board of Education to produce a report and list of underused state facilities as a possibility for charter schools and uh, the resolution has many components to it like it would also ask uh, for coordinating efforts with the school facilities agency to include public charter schools in helping build those facilities and it would also assess the amount of federal funds that are available to benefit eligible charter school facilities. One of the areas that we're looking at is right now for state facilities that are either underutilized or unused the State Department of Accounting and General Services is supposed to conduct a survey of those facilities and then provide an inventory to the, of those facilities to the Public Charter School Commission. I'm not confident that that is happening in a way that is beneficial to schools. And, and there's really no transparency or accountability for that process. So our resolution looks at uh, bringing that process into the light and really looking at how we can make sure that those facilities that uh, we know are out there are accessible to schools. We're also looking at creative opportunities for financing, including concepts like charter school loans or revolving loan funds, which have gotten quite popular in, in many other states. And I think the idea behind that kind of program is that it's both a win-win for the schools and for the state. For the schools, it provides great funding opportunities at low interest rates and opens up potential other funding that can be used to match that loan. And for the state, it's a little bit of less risk than you know having kind of dedicated funding every single year that needs to be appropriated. And there are some charter schools that operate on uh, in schools in in actual facilities, uh, but uh, you know if you are a startup school and you don't have that option, it's tough. It is tough, and this isn't unique to Hawaii. Um, on a national scale, other charter schools are facing the same exact issue. But when I was speaking with um, the national um, advocacy group, the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools, um, one of the cheaper options they were saying to help solve the problem, maybe not solve the problem, but they were saying that, oh, if you were to, if charter schools were to build or buy land, then that would be cheaper. But in Hawaii, we don't have much land available. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's tough. It is a very tough nut to crack. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thanks for having me. We've been talking to HBR's Cassie Ordonio about Hawaii's public charter schools and their facilities. You can read more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okawa, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today, we remember an industry pioneer who arrived in Keikaha, Kauai in 1856. Born in Norway and trained in botany and other sciences in Copenhagen, 
uh, Vladimir Knudsen came to Hawaii to help manage Grove Farm Plantation. He had up to this point already led an adventurous life on the U.S. continent. He'd been a publisher in New York, was a successful merchant during the California Gold Rush, and helped as a legal advisor to Native American Indians out west. After his arrival on the Garden Isle, the Kingdom of Hawaii uh, contracted Knudsen to dismantle the armaments at the Russian Fort Elizabeth. He went on to build a ranch on Crown Lands Least in Waimea's, uh, in Kauai's Waimea District. By 1878, Knudsen had drained and reclaimed about 50 acres of the property in order to plant sugar cane at Waiale. Uh, for today's Backyard Quiz, what was the name of Knudsen's company that became the first commercial producer of sugar in that area? Call 808-941-3689 or toll-free 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable HBR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareedHawaii.com. Nichols is a postdoc fellow in sociology at John Hopkins University. Her dissertation led her to focus on a new path, researching life and death at the Red Hill camps from 1941 to 1943. She has been scouring the National Archives and is hosting a talk next weekend on what she's found so far. Nichols was born at Tripler Hospital and for a time lived at Hickam Air Force Base. She returned for her high school years and was here doing research for her graduate work and left just as news of the fuel contamination in Red Hill broke. We talked to her about her research and the perspective of a military dependent. My family was still living there until 2021. And when I heard about the Red Hill spills, I just felt a profound sense of grief and kind of shock at the possibility of aquifer being, you know, irreparably harmed and also that it was like a direct cause of the negligence of the military. Um, and also, I myself didn't know that the, the site existed, even being, you know, in military spaces and community for a while. I felt like as someone who's done research on the history of colonialism in Hawaii and someone who is from a military family, it was such an interesting and poignant and personal example of, you know, when the military um, enacts harm, but it also, in this case, was harming the military families themselves. So I thought that it like, raised in these, me these questions I've had for a long time about, you know, how do military families start to learn about the wider history of Hawaii? How do they start to learn about their place in the world in this new context that they might find themselves being stationed there? So very much related to my own biography and my own hopes that, you know, that through this crisis and this tragedy, you know, which is foremost a tragedy for, I think, the Aina and the aquifer and Native Hawaiians, you know, that also other people who might not have thought more broadly about the military's place in Hawaii, the impact of it would start to um, or would have to reflect on this. Um, and I was also curious, you know, how people would start working together in solidarity um, with people maybe that they might not have been in the same spaces with before. Um, and, and if that was working out on the ground um, on Oahu, even though I wasn't there to, you know, see it firsthand. Well, tell us about the research and, and the digging that you did over at the National Archives. So the National Archives has something called the, the Still Pictures Division, which is, you know, all the, the photographs that they, they hold there about U.S. history, and there's different sections of it. But within the military part of the Still Pictures Division, you know, I just worked with the archivist there to go through the catalogs and find kind of any mention of Red Hill or Kapukaki or um, the underground and there, there were a lot of photos that have been seen before that are on the internet or have been a part of other people's research. 
but there are also a lot that I had never seen before that on the surface seem kind of boring, I think. But if you take time and you really look through them closely and you zoom in on the scans, you'll find little details of both the process of building, uh, you know, the fuel tanks and the facility, but also kind of the men's lives who lived and worked there um, and kind of the humanness of the process. And I started to realize the more I looked at the photographs while I was conducting interviews with impacted families that maybe these historical documents had something to teach people today, had something to teach us and those kind of grappling with the crisis and with their own place within it. Um, And I think that what I mean by that is that these workers, you know, were kind of caught up in something way bigger than themselves. And they, they lived there, they suffered in different ways, they weren't perfect people, and some of them even, you know, died there because of accidents on the work site. And it just was such a, a good example of, you know, we don't always know the larger powers that we're a part of, even as we're working within them. And also that these men in the archives that you see just glimpses of in the dark in the photographs, you know, they were also kind of made disposable, I think, by this project of the military in their own time. And I feel like that's something that people could relate to now that were impacted directly by the fuel spills. It really was a whole community there that was built, you know, around the life of the camps, right? I mean, those construction workers. It was a, a fascinating snapshot, you know, to learn about the sports competitions that they had. And, you know, the uh, from what I understand, they had, you know, rosters of all the players. And, and that mm-hmm. was... Uh, how the military, when they were trying to contact people who worked on it to be a part of the, you know, official opening uh, to tell the world about this uh, secret facility, that a lot of those workers slash players hung up on the military officials who called because they were told, well, you know, you're not supposed to talk about this facility. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating hearing about, um, you know, Jim Murray's research and and that kind of event to honor the men who built it that took place, you know, I think several years ago now. My research is still ongoing, so that's one of the things that I want to know is kind of if there are ways to see more of the archives of these men's life after they left the site and also hear firsthand some of their experiences. We can see and hear about some of their experiences through Red Hill Weekly, the, you know, the newsletter and magazine they published. But we know that it's like a very curated, you know, historical document because it's full of like jokes and and advertisements. And I'm sure it went through kind of their supervisors as they published it out into the world. But you see you see these very real moments where there's bits of poetry, where they're kind of writing about what they're doing in pursuit of um, a higher purpose. Like one of those poems is called Empire Builders. And then you, of course, see all the sports announcements and pictures of boxing matches and baseball games and hula performances and musical performances and theatrical productions that they had at camp. And then you also see them teasing each other over kind of who has a crush on um, some of the women who actually worked, like in the call center at Red Hill or who, you know, who is missing their loved one from far away. But I think what's more telling to me is the ways that also the Red Hill Weekly, it shows the archive of also kind of a segregated camp life, which I I want to look at further. You know, we know that a lot of the men came from the continent and were kind of workers in mines or other kinds of, you know, dangerous jobs that they did prior to being a part of Red Hill. Then some of the men were kind of local, you know, Japanese, Chinese laborers and also Kanaka. Um, There were Hawaiians who worked at the site and did a variety of jobs. But from what I can see in the, you know, the the photographic archives and also Red Hill Weekly, I feel like these groups were segregated to some extent. And we also know that the Japanese workers were discriminated against. They were kind of made to wear a special badge that, that marked them as Japanese, especially after, well, after, you know, December 7th, 1941. So I, I also want to think carefully about how, you know, these divisions of background and race and class worked at camp life 
And I don't know if I'll be able to see data that gives me a picture of that, but I think that's also important. And, you know, there's a lot of other interesting themes in the archives, like masculinity and how they were always thinking about (laughs) their relationships with women who would come and perform or, you know, the way that women were kind of on display to keep morale up at camp. So you are going to be giving a a talk, a webinar on the research that you've done to date. What do you hope to convey to people who take part in this? Yeah, the webinar is really for the impacted community and then for others um, who've been impacted by the crisis and been working in activism and in other ways to shut down Red Hill and, and to think more carefully about ecological issues in Hawaii. So it's really a more contemplative webinar about the photograph and the magazine and like I said before um, for people to grapple with you know kind of the complex personhood of some of these men who lived and died at the camp while also kind of seeing them in their broader historical context that they didn't know what they were a part of they didn't know that what they were building would cause this devastation and, and potentially you know, harm an entire island's water source. And I think there's a lesson in that for kind of how how a lot of my interview respondents have thought about their own place in the crisis. Um, because a lot of people have expressed, you know, that feeling of dissonance of being both a part of the military and also being harmed by it in this deep way. And so I think looking through the eyes of men in these photographs and then thinking about the larger structure that they were involved in is a way to also reflect on all of our own various standpoints. And then, and then from that position, be able to kind of think about how we want to act in the world today, even though it can be very complicated for people who are still, you know, reliant on the military for their for their life right now in much the way that these men were. That was Heidi Nichols, a postdoc fellow at John Hopkins University. She is researching life and death at Red Hill Camps during uh, the construction of that underground fuel facility. uh, Nichols, (coughs) excuse me, has been digging through photographs and the weekly newsletters that were published during the 1940s. Her webinar talk is set for this Saturday, February 3rd. Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce, supporting businesses that are dedicated to the triple bottom line of people, planet, and prosperity, launching its directory of member businesses. Learn more at chamberofsustainablecommerce.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Issa Guchardi, author of Coming to Peace, and next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my new book, Coming to Peace, Resolving Conflict Within Ourselves and with Others. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. In a world of competitive um, video gaming or esports, only a small fraction of the millions being won in competitions are going to women. A group of students at the University of Hawaii at Manoa is hoping to change that. The women of East of UH esports, uh, also known as women of UHE, was created to make sure marginalized genders have equal opportunities to play and potentially earn a future career in the gaming industry. Founder Madeline Gilbert explained to the conversations Russell Subiono why the organization is needed. I actually work at UH esports as a player support coordinator, and I've done that for over a year and a half now. So I'm 
pretty involved in the program in itself. And I know the community really well and all the people are involved. And saying that, I also know how few women are involved in the community and how like dominated by men. And Yuri Chu Sports is actually one of the places that I think has been an exception to this in some ways, because there is actually a lot of women that have been involved with the program even before I got there. And that was quite inspirational for me to see a lot of women in these kind of like leadership roles to feel inspired that I could also take on that kind of role. But saying that there's still a lack of women in the program. And I think just there has always been kind of more of more sexism that I've experienced in the program than anything else I've done in my life, which is quite sad, especially as we're like in 2024 and it's such a new age and I didn't really expect to face those kind of issues and especially in like pretty high tech gaming industry, but they do exist and they're quite predominant. So after about, I think a year of working in the program, just kind of decided it was a good move to make something that was just a community for women and marginalized genders to feel comfortable in and to support their interest in gaming to make sure that they're getting equal opportunities that they're not being shunned out and not afraid to kind of participate in that environment are you yourself a gamer i was a bigger gamer before i think the more i've actually started working in esports the less time i've had for games oh yeah so everything i play nowadays is quite casual but i used to actually play a lot of Valorant and other like FPS kind of games that our program is known for having like esports teams for. But nowadays it's a lot of just casual games kind of to wind down. But that's why I love esports and I love gaming is that there's always a place for everyone. There's always a game that can appease to someone. Part of the goal of, of the women of UH esports is to foster more opportunities for women in the actual gaming competition part of it, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I know that according to a 2021 BBC article, there are no female esports players in the world's top 300 earners, and women are only winning a small fraction of the millions being won in competition. What does there need to be more of to help women make that leap into actually competing in esports? I think, for example, that we created a team for Valorant, which is entirely marginalized genders. Mm-hmm. And people are able to join this team and play and get competitive experience because they probably wouldn't have been able to join our UH Esports Valorant team. And that's just because it is so competitive and there are significantly more men that are trying out and that are playing than when compared to women. And so even the chances among the men of them getting in is quite small. And then there's an even smaller amount of women trying out. So then it just becomes like, I think we've had over all of our varsity teams, like maybe one to three women. And that's like 90 players, which is significantly small. But having this program and being able to give women an opportunity to play competitively might be able to bring them into the competitive scene. But I think overall, just supporting women in gaming and making it kind of normalized. I think growing up, women playing games and girls playing games wasn't as big as guys doing it. And a lot of the reason that I did even play games was because of my brother and because I had a few guy friends growing up that we would play games together. But I had no girlfriends that I would play games with. So I think it's a broader question on like, how can we support young girls get into gaming? Because a lot of the guys get into gaming when they're quite young and um, you know their parents are buying them a console for Christmas or something, or they're buying a Nintendo DS and how can we kind of make that more normalized for women as well that it's not just like a boys thing and when we think about traditional sports there's much that rests on a person's overall physical attributes but in esports it seems like it's a much more level playing field all you need is eyes a brain hands and good coordination it seems like <laughs> and and you have a shot to excel do you feel like esports is a place where opportunities for both men and women and all genders are more equal across the board? I absolutely do. And this is with no scientific backing. So I can't say this like 
absolutely for sure. But I think if you put two gamers in a room and one was a man and one was a woman and they had the exact same experience playing a game, they would probably be at an equal level and they would probably play the game as I don't think either of them would be better than the other or would have an advantage because obviously we have biological differences when it comes to sports and there is like a part of that that affects the competition but then in esports it's just not the same and I think that's really cool and it's interesting to think about why that women haven't been able to kind of get into the industry and play more competitively when there is a more equal playing field and I think it does differ from different games that we play like there are some games that I could say that that if I started playing in it I would have more kind of I guess backlash or just like rude comments or harassment compared to some other games that that might not exist as much and there's also a noticeable difference with like a game like Valorant I think has been so great recently because there have been more women like noticeably playing this game and so when getting into lobbies when playing with people you can talk to each other through a mic and communicate while you're playing the game and the amount of times that I've played where it has been an entirely female lobby or female identifying lobby is quite significant when I was so used to playing games like as the only girl and always being called out for being a girl, always being like given sexist remarks or, you know, just pointing it out. So that change recently has been interesting to kind of see as someone that's gamed for a decent amount of time. How would you like to see the women of UHE impact esports in the future? What's your vision for women in general in esports? I hope to just promote more interest in it, that women and younger girls can get into this industry, that other marginalized genders that face discrimination will be able to get into the industry, and that they have a safe community to be in. And I'm really fortunate to have quite a few staff members and board members who some have grown up in Hawaii or some come from different backgrounds that can support me in doing this initiative. Because I think it's so important to also be involved, hopefully, in the high schools around the area and just support girls in gaming from when they're way younger. And then for them to know that there's a safe place for them to go when they reach college or even in high school, that I think that's really important. So I'm just hoping that this presence stays and... Of course, my end goal is that there wouldn't be a need for this program, that we can live equally, that we can have equal opportunities and be respected equally. And unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen soon, but it's amazing to have this opportunity for a program to create this community and be with such amazing people. Madeline Gilbert, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you so much. That was a woman of UH Esports founder Madeline Gilbert talking to HBR's Russell Subiono. The focus of the group is to increase opportunities for women within the competitive video gaming industry. Do you love public radio? Would you like to join the team that puts your favorite HPR programs on the air? We may have the perfect job for you. HPR is hiring a full-time board operator. Audio editing and broadcasting experience are required, and skills as an on-air announcer are a plus. If this job opportunity is music to your ears, visit hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs to learn more. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. Now it's time to extract the answer for today's Backyard Quiz. Earlier in the show, we told you about 19th century pioneer um, Valdemar Newtons, who, who had met many adventures uh, on the U.S. continent before arriving in Kekaha, Kauai in 1856. One of his first jobs was to manage the Grove Farm Plantation. 
He also had a brief stint removing armaments from the Russian Fort Elizabeth for the Kingdom of Hawaii. He'd go on to establish a Waimea ranch in partnership with Henrik Christian Lorange, a fellow Norwegian. About 50 acres of that land was drained and reclaimed to grow sugarcane commercially on the island. Knudsen married local heiress Anne Sinclair, whose family had purchased the island of Niihau from King Kamehameha the Fourth in 1863. She had extensive land holdings on her own, which allowed the couple to live comfortably and raise five children. Known to the Hawaiians as Kanuka, uh, Knudsen planted Lahaina variety of sugarcane on what would become the Keikaha Sugar Company. The winner today, Roy from Kauai. And that was the backyard quiz answer we were looking for. That's our quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. It was in January of 1891 that King David Kalakaua died in San Francisco. He had often called the historic Palace Hotel home when he traveled there, and sadly that visit to the city by the bay would be his last. Visitors may be surprised to see a pair of throne chairs with a plaque noting that uh, they'd been donated to the hotel as a gesture from someone in his family. The Victorian-era gilt chairs are a nod to just a few of the connections to Hawaii, as it has sister properties on Oahu and Maui. We talked to General Manager Angie Clifton about the chairs and Landmark 18, a new museum corner carved into the hotel that includes a mention of the ties to the islands. Uh, Here's Clifton. He was attending a number of social events in the city and negotiating with John D. Spreckles, who was interested in growing sugarcane in Hawaii. So shortly after the king arrived in the city on January 20th of 1891, and at the time he was the last reigning king of Hawaii, sadly he passed away at the hotel. So to pay tribute to the king, uh, the palace flew the Hawaiian flag, uh, lowered it to half-mast, had it prominently displayed outside the palace, and it said that the, the King's Ohana gifted those beautiful throne chairs to the palace in appreciation for our years of sharing true aloha spirit with King Kalakaua and his, his staff. So they were a, a generous gift to the palace from the King's Ohana. And as you mentioned, the, these magnificent throne chairs still sit prominently in our palace lobby Today. Yes, I mean they're they're beautiful chairs, and and you know I understand that there are pictures of it when uh, the current Palace Hotel was reopened because right. the original one burned after the earth, big earthquake. Right. Yes. Yeah, so the the Palace Hotel actually survived the 1906 earthquake. The structure survived, but it it succumbed to the fires. And the the story back from then was that the the water that could have been used to put up the fires here was used to put up the fires at the Mint, which was across the street from the hotel at the time. So um, unfortunately, it, it did it did meet its demise, but was beautifully rebuilt in 1909 and reopened at that time. I understand walking through your hallway uh, last year. Uh, that you folks have created a little museum space where you mentioned the king's stay there and and the history and the ties uh, to the hotel. So the name of the history museum is Landmark 18, and Landmark 18 is an ode to our garden court structure, our garden court uh, restaurant and area is actually a designated indoor landmark for the city of San Francisco and the only indoor designated landmark for the city. And on the registrar is noted as Landmark 18. So the name of the History Museum is an ode to that designation. And it was in, unveiled in May of 2020. Uh, it took over a year to curate uh, from our archives and, and definitely a collaborative effort between um, our area general manager, Clifton Clark, and two people who had worked at the Palace Hotel for more than 20 years. So definitely a collaborative effort and a true labor of love. So a labor of love. It was created for our guests to enjoy and immerse themselves in the history of the palace, but also created with our employees in mind. The museum is another experience for them to share with our guests and something for them to truly be proud of. And our, and our associates, our employees here, have a lot of pride in the palace and the service we provide and in its history. So they love to be able to point 
out the museum, take the guests to the museum, and help them share in our history. So it's it's definitely a, a win with our employees as well. well it's located on the lobby level, as you men- mentioned, just off the promenade, and the museum features a wide array of historic palace photographs, stories, rare memorabilia, photos, postcards. It's really something to be seen in person. There is a framed picture of King Kalakaua and a, and a calabash and a, a little write-up of his stay there. And so, gosh, you know, I understand that this was the creation of this uh, little museum space in the corner there was really a way to welcome people back, you know, after the pandemic shutdown you know, because there's so many places were, were basically closed off. I mean, it was hard, I'm sure, right. for the employees, for the guests uh, who, you know, maybe had been booked there. Yes, it was a wonderful way to take advantage of, sadly, some downtime, but a wonderful way to welcome both guests and employees back into the building with something positive and something that they could celebrate after such a such a hard time of the hospitality industry in San Francisco and the world going through through such a traumatic event. So it was nice to have what I call a silver lining part of that period. And as I walk through there, you know, like I said, it, it, I didn't realize that Kyoya was also another connection uh, to Hawaii. Yes, it's wonderful to have those those ties and to have such a connection and that uh, Ohana spirit with our sister properties over in Oahu and on Maui and have that partnership with Kioya as far as running the hotel. Well, I, I just think, yes, that's the, you know, the sensitivity and the acknowledgement, right? I mean, here on Oahu with the Royal Hawaiian Hotel and the Moana, two of the most respected uh, and historic properties. Uh, and to have that tie, I, I think, is just uh, is, is something special. It's very special. Even our uh, hotel cafeteria is called Ohana, and we truly do participate in that that family Hawaiian Ohana spirit with with our sister properties over in Hawaii. That was Angie Clifton, general manager of the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, talking about the ties between the historic property in the city by the bay and Hawaii's monarchy. King Kalakaua died at that hotel 133 years ago this month. It is a Kyoya sister property to Hawaii's Royal Hawaiian, Moana Surfrider, and Princess Kaiulani Hotels, as well as the uh, Waikiki Sheraton and the Sheraton Resort on Maui. That is it for us today. Tomorrow, we learn about a second call for local small businesses interested in learning about branding. What do you think about the state of our downtown financial district in Chinatown? Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217 and record something. The conversation is available as a podcast on our website or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you look for podcasts from. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.